Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. So I'd like to ask you first how you would like uh, to define yourself for the audience. It may be first time listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? Well, yeah. So I am a, an associate professor in electrical and computer engineering at the University of Michigan. I'm also the associate director for graduate education in the Michigan Robotics Institute. So I'm curious about your work in legged robotics and exoskeleton. If you can tell me more about maybe why you're so passionate about what you're doing that as in your research. What could be the most maybe important question do you think is still not fully considered yet in this field of domain? Right, yeah. So I think my whole soapbox for, for this, this type of research is, has been trying to bring autonomous control methods that have been pioneered in the autonomous legged robots community. Um, so we're talking about robots that can walk independently of humans, um, you know, walking, running, climbing stairs all on their own. And if we can, if we can get autonomous legged robots to do that so gracefully, then we should be able to get prosthetic legs and lower limb exoskeletons to also walk gracefully um, with humans, right? Uh, but of course, it's not quite as so easy as taking uh, the control method that works on an autonomous robot and putting it on, a, on an exoskeleton because you also need the exoskeleton to walk in a, in a human-like manner, not 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 like a robot, right? So, so then there's an extra challenge of trying to encode human-inspired control principles into these very principled control methods uh, for legged robots. And so that's really where my research focuses. And, and over time, it's been growing also into the area of actuation as well, because I've found that a lot of the, a lot of the work that we're trying to do for both prostheses and exoskeletons requires... Uh, very back drivable, very um, kind of naturally compliant actuators um, that, that aren't compliant through the use of springs or, or soft materials, but are compliant in, in the sense of having very minimal inertia. And so they're, they're easy to, to, um, to back drive and comply with, with the ground, much like uh, you may be familiar with the MIT Cheetah robot, right? Um, we've essentially taken inspiration from that autonomous robot and been trying to apply similar uh, quasi-direct drive actuators to uh, to wearable robots. So I'm curious about the problem in that case, since you're using quasi, for example, uh, back drive actuator in that case. And if you can tell more about what kind of problem do you believe that's uh, solved by this technique and maybe still also limitation do you believe in this technique as well? Yeah, yeah so the, the big problem is how do you get enough output torque without adding a bunch of inertia and friction, right? That, that, that's, that's the big problem. And, and so um, you know, when you're talking about a wearable robot, so an exoskeleton that has to help someone move, you know, you need, you need to produce a significant amount of torque, you know, depending on, on the type of impairment that you're trying to, to assist. The torque can be, you know, anywhere from maybe 20 Newton meters to, to 100 Newton meters. And so, um, how do you get that kind of torque without adding all the, the friction and inertia that, that makes it the joint very stiff, very rigid, right? 
So that that's the big challenge. And so then, thankfully, the the field of, of drones and, and, and to some extent electric cars are making uh, really, really nice high torque, uh, low inertia motors. And so then we can couple those with minimal transmissions so that they end up being what we call quasi direct drives. And then we can get essentially the best of both worlds, high output torque, low back drive torque um, with only a minimal trade-off for mass. That's kind of like the, the one downside is that as you, as you tend to um, as you tend to optimize for both output torque and back drivability, you tend to increase mass a little bit, but not not to the point where it's not a feasible solution anymore. And it's getting better and better every every year with new new products hitting the market. Mm-hmm. So maybe hear about the trade off here. Do you believe that's truly work? That's something you can't uh, overcome as a trade off, or maybe unavoidable trade off in that case? Do you have any scenario like that in, in this stage? Yeah, so, so you know, I, I think that, that you know, mass is, is theoretically a, an unavoidable trade-off. We, we had a recent uh, paper published in IEEE ASME Transactions on Mechatronics that, that analyzed this. And so technically, as, as you try to make your, your actuator uh, more back-drivable by relying more on the, on, the, on the motor diameter, for example, increasing the motor diameter, you're going to increase the mass a little bit. But but then that all depends on the architecture of the motor. Like, what is the baseline mass that you're talking about, right? And so um, that that's kind of the unavoidable theoretical problem. But but in practice, um, the, the we're seeing some really really cool designs coming out of uh, T Motor specifically has some really impressive motors. And in fact, they're even now selling uh, integrated uh, motors with with planetary transmissions. That are so the planetary transmission is integrated into the center, the inner diameter of the motor. And it kind of does everything for us, um, and so we're no longer um, in the in the business uh, of designing custom gears and, and custom actuators. We're actually now beginning to transition towards using these off-the-shelf solutions, which makes our job a lot easier. Since what I really want to focus on is is control problems, um, and lately I've been focusing a lot on design problems, so that I could I could demonstrate my control ideas. But and now now it's kind of a convergence of of the two where we can kind of get the best of, of control theory with the best of what industry has to, has to offer for design. Mm-hmm. Great point. So maybe also because we haven't, and, uh, before in the podcast about discussion about using, for example, soft actuators, or you speak about that before, but I'm curious if you can elaborate more, why do you believe, for example, elastic actuator could be maybe challenged a little bit in that case scenario for like robotics or exoskeleton yeah. into scope? If you can elaborate more about that. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, so first of all, I think series elastic actuators are great in many ways. Um, I think they, they, they achieve a similar goal of having this kind of soft interaction with the human. Um, and so in, in the case of, you're, of course, adding a spring to, to do that um, so that you have a mechanical compliance um, in series with the motor. So that, that, that works and, and also provides a um, kind of local back drivability. You know, like you can kind of, you can kind of flex the spring and, and move your joint uh, freely within some some range of motion uh, until of course the spring force gets too large and you can't overcome it um, depending on what the motor is doing so it does provide that kind of local back drivability as well the the downside of series elastic actuators I think is that uh, you're adding some mechanical complexity by adding in the spring in the first place right and that mechanical complexity oftentimes means higher cost sometimes means higher weight depending on how you do it um, also uh, you 
you can use the spring to estimate the output torque and therefore kind of servo the motor to give you a, a zero a zero um, torque interaction, essentially kind of uh, actively controlling back drivability. But you're never going to be able to do that with such a high bandwidth that it truly feels invisible to the user. So, so, so series elastic actuators tend to have uh, lower torque control bandwidth than, than their quasi-direct drive counterparts. Um, and so that's kind of where the, the main downside is, in my opinion, is, is in that control bandwidth. Um, so, so if you're doing slow motions, then the, the series elastic actu actuators can get out of the way pretty, pretty effectively. But if you're trying to walk very quickly, dynamically, maybe even running, that's where the bandwidth might catch up with you and may limit the types of output, output impedance or output um, torques that you, can, that you want to regulate. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. So when it comes to control, for example, here, you speak about how we, how we can also have this kind of intuitive design and also can synchronize it with the hip movement to, to the foot as well here. So if you can tell more, more about that and what could be still maybe room of improvement here when it comes to, to have energy efficiency as well as the designs and to you also found that in, in your research. Yeah. So from like a controls perspective, is that you're, you're asking? Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about exoskeletons for, for a second. So, um, what my, my big philosophy for controlling exoskeletons is particularly uh, designed for people who require partial assistance. And so I say that these, these are individuals who have, you know, uh, minor to moderate impairments that still have some voluntary control over their limbs um, and, and that they just want some assistance while they're walking. And so that could be someone who has, you know, osteoarthritis or who has sustained kind of a mild to moderate stroke or someone who just has age-related immobility. And so when you're controlling a, a, an exoskeleton for that type of uh, population, then you really don't want to be kind of overdoing it in terms of what you're commanding the motors to do, right? You don't want to be controlling the kinematics of the joint um, because that one, that's going to interfere with the, with the user, what they're trying to do. And two, it's just, um, you know, when you have this kind of... Um, I don't know, over-aggressive control approach, then of course you're also going to overuse the battery more than you need, right? And so um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to have a very minimalist control approach where we're essentially trying to augment um, the energetics of the user. So essentially trying to provide co gravity compensation or inertia compensation, kind of minimal things that provide a meaningful assistive torque, but don't do too much to get in the way of the, of the user or to, um, to over, over use, um, the actuation and drain the batteries. And, and also, um, what's nice is that for multi-joint systems, like if you have a, if you have a actuated knee and ankle, well, um, if you use a, a, a quasi direct drive actuator, then you can, you can, actually benefit from the re regeneration of energy that they offer. So when one joint's doing negative work, it could be generating energy while the other actuator is doing positive work and then, and then um, you know, outputting that, that charge, that regenerated energy. So essentially it's called energy sharing between the joints. And that's also really great for energy efficiency as well. And that, that happens um, during the gait cycle, during human walking, where you have one joint doing positive work like the ankle another joint doing negative work like the knee, and they can share power to make a more efficient system. And so that kind of comes somewhat naturally with quasi-direct drives as long as they're both 
on the same um, uh, power uh, bus. Mm-hmm. That's really right, yeah. So I'm curious about uncertainty. We speak about the uncertainty and when it comes to the design and also the environment. Too. Have you can manage to do the adaptable exoskeleton or the leg drop within that scenario to uncertainty? Because I think it's a very interesting point. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, uncertainty is, is certainly something that, that is really important to this application area. Humans, of course, are very uncertain in the first place, right? Like what, what is the human trying to do? How much does the human weigh? Is the, is the human you know, wearing a backpack or that kind of thing? And so uh, I think that with, with control, it helps a lot to not try to control kinematic objectives for exoskeletons because then you don't have to worry about what is the human trying to do? I only want to, for example, compensate for gravity, which that objective is invariant across activities. Um, we do typically need to know whether the exoskeleton is is, on, is in stance phase or swing phase, but that, that's relatively easy to detect. Um, so that deals with the uncertainty associated with like the activity of the person. Um, on the prosthetic leg side of things, it's definitely harder um, because in the, with a prosthetic leg, you actually do have to control kinematics to some degree um, because there's no, there's no limb, there's no biological limb to provide those kinematics, right? And so then... Um, we have to deal with this, this problem of, of, to some degree, estimating intent for activities. Um, but we try to minimize the number of activities we're trying to, um, to detect in the sense that if we can, if we can say, classify um, walking and standing and ramp, and ramp uh, ascent and descent as like one activity mode and then let the controller be able to handle all of those conditions, then that simplifies the the intent recognition process where, where maybe you're just trying to, de- to detect between that big mode and maybe stair ascent and stair descent and then and then sit, sitting. And so then you have these four options you're trying to trying to to um, classify. And then within each of those options, you have an adaptive controller that can handle all the cases included in there. And so and what I mentioned earlier, the walking, um, ramp walking and, and standing controller, well, essentially what we're doing there is we're allowing the prosthesis to detect the inclination of the ground and the walking speed of the person so that that can all be done automatically um, without having to actually estimate the intent of the person. That's more of like an environmental thing as opposed to an intent thing. And so we're essentially trying to kind of create some abstraction uh, you know, a, a, a convenient abstraction to um, to deal with uncertainty in terms of um, both human intent and then environmental factors as well, and try to try to separate them in in that sense. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to in reality, where we see an evolution, how human already we, it is this something for you hard to understand how this is happening because you say that there's still a lot maybe to replicate what we already have. How do you see so far maybe the gap between what we have in as a human walking and also the robot we do? Yeah, yeah. There's there's certainly a big gap still, right? Um, um, right now we're it, we're very it's very very difficult to, for example, improve the gait of a of a completely able bodied person. Um, some people are are able to do it, but with very very controlled conditions like walking on a treadmill at a specific speed. Um, rather than 
uh, walking around, out and about in the world. Um, it's very, very difficult to do that. And that's just because of how amazingly adapted we are at, 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 at locomotion, right? So, so that, yeah, we're, we're still not quite to the point where our, our robots can outperform our biological limbs, right? Um, I think that may, maybe in the future, maybe within the next few decades, you know, the actuators will get better, lighter, um, our control methods will, will our, our control methods will become more synchronized to the human user and to the, their activity, to the environment. And then we'll get to the point where maybe we're beginning to push the boundaries of, of human of biological capabilities. But even then, we're still going to have issues with, you know, really, I don't know, sensing and like sensing um, the environment through proprioception and 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 um, mechanoreceptors in the feet that are missing with with you know with an amputated limb. The, we're never going to be able to easily replace that without neural interfaces and, and things that are kind of outside of the field of robotics, uh, at least, at least my, my, my subset of robotics. Um, but there are people working on those problems, right? And so, and so that could happen in the next couple of decades, but until we have this really kind of high fidelity interface between the brain and the nervous system and the robot, I don't know if we're ever going to get to the point of outperforming the, bio, the biological um, system. Mm -hmm. So based on that, where do you believe that maybe as a community in that case, you have to, yeah, give more attention? Where do you think that maybe the key points that maybe can push the limits here? Do you believe that we have to give more focus here? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'd say that uh, we need to continue to give more attention to actuators because actuators are still a limiting factor. We, you know, motors are still, you know, heavy, you know, relative to, to muscle and, and, um, we still can't make but like artificial muscles that do exactly what human muscles can do and stuff like that. So there's still plenty of work to be done in actuation. There's still work to be done in terms of sensing. I mean, even, even just sometimes contact sensing, but with, with an exoskeleton in particular is, is, is challenging. If, for example, if, um, if you want to use your own shoes, um, as opposed to like a, a big a big foot plate on an exoskeleton, um, it's hard to get a reliable insole into your shoes that detects contact. The those those sensors degrade very quickly, and so um, that's still a challenge. And then of course the, the the neural interfacing side of things, which again that requires our our friends in neural engineering to to you know conquer those challenges. But once we get there, I feel more confident about our, our, our capabilities. Um, and there's one more that I would add, and that is the more the physical, the physical interface too. So um, like for example, with, a, with an, someone who's lost a limb, um, prosthetic legs are, are essentially attached to soft tissue, right? I mean, they're not, they're not attached to bone like our biological limbs. Uh, they're not attached to the skeleton like our biological limbs are. And so that, that is a, that causes all sorts of problems associated with uh, skin irritation, having this soft interface um, that makes it difficult to transfer power, mechanical power, uh, between the body and the and the prosthesis. Um, similarly, with uh, exoskeletons, we see a lot of um, energy getting lost through deformable tissue. Right, the viscosity of the tissue ends up absorbing a lot of energy, and then also just like the um, oftentimes straps will just will will, will not uh, apply 
um, forces as efficiently as you'd like because they, they move, right? So, so th the physical interface is still a big challenge too. This is a really good point, yeah. So also about the resilience in that case, do you consider that, I don't know, situation like how we have resilience or redundancy as a behavior and that in the, yeah, in the design, is this something do you consider as well? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. So, so, so redundancy in the sense of um, perhaps like control methods that that um, have backup plans, for example. So that is one thing we've we've been exploring. That if 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 for example, if we're trying to do like some sort of estimation of of um, inclination or or walking speed or step length, and using that to update our control our control method accordingly. Well, you could run into these kind of edge cases where maybe those estimates um, become unreliable, um, or like you know, there's this idea with a Kalman filter that that you can you can um, kidnap the Kalman filter and, and it could it could spit out nonsense uh, results, and so we do think about having kind of backup plans for that where we have a we have a much simpler, for example, um, maybe an estimation that's done. Um, as moving average over several strides um, that doesn't doesn't adapt as quickly, but it's more reliable, right? And so you just have to know when is your primary estimate estimate failing you, right? And then you can switch to your backup. And so we have resiliency in the control in that sense. Um, actuation is actually an interesting one because one of the um, the, one, the, big, the biggest benefit of a quasi-direct drive actuator can also be its biggest um, risk with a, with a, in a prosthetic leg. So if you have a, if you have a very back-drivable actuator in a prosthetic leg, well, that's great in terms of giving you a nice dynamic um, pendular motion. Um, that's great, but when it's powered on and you, when, you're, when you're walking on it. Um, but then as soon as, as, soon as, the, as, soon as you have a, a fault, maybe the battery dies or there's a controller, control error, and let's say the, the control system turns off. Well, then you have a very back drivable joint that will not support your weight as soon as you step on it, right? And that could be catastrophic for, for you know, someone who's, who's walking on a prosthesis. And so um, how do we deal with that scenario? Well, we've thought about various methods. So you, can, you can have like a, um, a, a fallback strategy where you short the windings so that they create their own um, damping but that won't necessarily be enough damping to stop you from falling, but maybe it'll slow you down from falling. Um, we've also been thinking about uh, magnetic brakes or magnetic clutches that will engage uh, as soon as you lose power to the motor driver. Um, the, the, then, then that adds additional complexity and weight, right? So, so these, these are definitely um, things that I'm thinking about, especially if we ever wanna bring uh, these quasi-direct drive actuators to market in prosthetic legs, we, we need them to be safe when they're powered off. Essentially, you need you need, you need your leg to to go back to something you can you can stand on at least <laughs> um, when, when it's not being actively controlled. And unfortunately, that's not what uh, quasi direct drives do naturally. Thanks so much for this point. Yeah, and we ask almost about the counterintuitive result. I don't know if you have any moments of counterintuitive maybe results, or maybe sometimes something doesn't make sense to you. Yeah, no shortage of counterintuitive results, I'd say. <laughs> um, one of our recent ones is, um, so we're, we're, when we're trying to control an exoskeleton for partial assistance, you know, the idea is that 
the hypothesis is that if you provide some of the biological torque that your joints would normally be producing, well then your muscles shouldn't have to work quite as hard, right? That's, that's the hypothesis. And that works really well in some, in some, um, in some tasks like uh, sit to stand and repetitive lifting and lowering. It does work quite well for those uh, fairly simple tasks. But what we've noticed is that for more complicated tasks like uh, climbing stairs, uh, walking, it's not so obvious. Um, you don't, we don't quite see that, that, um, that cause and effect where if we, even if we're perfectly matching the, the biological torque at the joint, um, and usually we're providing a fraction of it. So let's say just for example, maybe we're, maybe we're providing 50% of the biological torque at the ankle and the knee. Well, that doesn't necessarily correspond to um, a 50% reduction in the muscle activation as measured by um, EMG sensors, electromyography. Um, Sometimes we even see the opposite effect. Sometimes in some muscles, we see an increase in activation, but whereas in other muscles, we see decrease in activation with the exoskeleton assistance. And so that, that, that's definitely been a source of, of, of um, frustration as well as, as curiosity as to why, why this is. Um, is it because um, maybe, the, maybe a biological torque isn't the optimal torque for assisting Human, human muscular effort, that's possible. Maybe the exoskeletons we've been using are just too big and heavy and bulky and that they change the person's gait because of that, even though they're back drivable. Maybe they're really back drivable, but they're still kind of heavy and cumbersome. That can have a, a negative impact on, on walking gait. And so we are definitely still uh, grappling with these challenges. Uh, it's very, very um, interesting. And we'll see as, as we get newer... Uh, and, and sleeker designs that are that are lighter and and and, and smaller, maybe we'll we'll see some of these some of these counterintuitive results disappear, or maybe we won't, and then we'll, and then we'll have to figure out why. Yeah. Great. So since I close and end, I have a few questions. Maybe the first one: What could be um, maybe technological blocks? Do you believe that still maybe will be a long in longer term still exist? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think kind of the 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 big ones are like battery life and battery um, weight, right? Those, you know, it's kind of any, any electrically powered, you know, wearable something is going to have that problem. Um, thankfully, you know, we keep hearing um, about these new, new uh, battery technologies coming out. I, I read about them every now and then in IEEE Spectrum magazine, you know, and, and they sound really exciting. They haven't, they haven't gotten to us yet, but I would love to see that. Um, I, I you know I think I think motor technology like I mentioned earlier is getting better and better but I still want to see um you know even more improvements um see them get smaller and and more yet more torque dense um and and I would love to see uh better contact sensing I would love to see better um uh measurement techniques for for biomechanical outcomes, you know, like I mentioned, we, we do look at muscle activation through EMG. Well, EMG is a noisy sensing modality. Um, so that has its downsides. Um, some people like to look at metabolic cost. Well, that's also a, a very slow um, and noisy um, sensing modality as well. And so they all have their, their, their upsides and downsides. And 
Um, so we still need to see improvements in, in how we measure uh, biomechanical outcomes as well. Mm-hmm. Great. So also I'm curious about, do you have a moment of doubt when you try to solve a problem and ask her a question? Because I think in the research sometimes, yeah, sometimes you doubt whether you choose right approach or I don't know how you deal with that or you have it or not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I certainly doubt whether, um, you know, I, my, you know, any, any given project is, is going in the right direction. You know, you have to keep an open, you have to keep an open mind, right? You ha- uh, otherwise you never learn from, from, from the research. And, and so, you know, my, my, my philosophy changes over time. Um, and oftentimes, sometimes I'll even have, uh, if I have students that are particularly passionate about an alternate approach, I'll give them some, some, some freedom to, to pursue it, you know, and, and so maybe we'll have a couple approaches um, that are different from each other trying to solve the same problem. And, and then we'll learn something from each, from each approach. You know, it's not to create competition between the students, but it's, it's to introduce, you know, a diversity of ideas and then see what, what aspects work well and what aspects don't. And so uh, definitely that, that is a big part of, of, of my, my research. Um, I can give you one quick example and, and you know, I, my prosthetic leg work has been largely focused on controlling uh, kinematics, so essentially position control of, of joint trajectories for the prosthetic leg. And we've gotten pretty good at controlling joint position with our actuators um, that I talked about earlier. But we've also noticed that no matter how carefully we synchronize the, the position trajectories with the, the progression of the gait cycle or the activity of the user, we're still not gonna have perfect synchrony. And so rigidly controlling position won't always give you the desired, you know, smoothness or compliance that you want with the ground and stuff like that. Um, kind of the, it won't give you a very natural feel. And so now we've been moving more towards a, an, you know, an impedance control um, philosophy where we, we like to control stiffness and damping as well as, a, as, a, as an equilibrium angle for the, but this is, but they're all, they're all time varying quantities though. They're, they're, they're um, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, a, a fixed stiffness, a fixed um, damping. Um, so they, they vary over, over, over the gait cycle, but um, this is still a different approach than what I originally envisioned. Um, and, and, but, you know, like I said, as you, as you, as you learn the downsides of one approach, you, you, you open up the door to new approaches. Right. I don't know if you have any crazy ideas when you try to think about yeah, five years or now, a couple of years coming. What kind of thought do you have in mind about what you try to do? I don't know if you think about that sometimes. Oh, like what I want to do with it. Yeah, just like crazy ideas, something, yeah. Sometimes we have kind of imagination. <laughs> crazy ideas, yeah. Okay, well, I don't know how, how far, I don't know how far away this is. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know if it would be five years or 10 years or whatever. But I'd say one of my just personal career goals is to create um, an exoskeleton that, is, um, that actually helps someone enough. Um, to get banned by the Olympics or something like that, you know. So, so right now we're kind of, you know, the, the Olympic trials are happening right now. We're all getting excited about the, the, uh, the Olympics coming up. Um, and, and, you know, just in the back of my head, I've always been like, well, right now if I put an exoskeleton on one of these athletes, it's definitely going to slow them down, you know. No, no, 100% it's going to make them worse. But, um, but that's going to change one day, right? And, and, and if, you know, if we can design them to be light enough and, and, and intuitive enough and synchronized enough, then you could potentially have an advantage that then gets banned by, by the Olympic committee. Right. And then, you know, you've made an impact. <laughs> so, 
so that's my crazy idea. Um, just it's not necessarily that I I want to cause you know a controversy with the Olympics. It's just that, that. But if you can do that though, that means you've really made a difference in in terms of human performance, right? Wonderful. Yeah. So I don't know if you you believe that ego is important for you when it comes to yeah because in academia sometimes you have a lot of ego and so I don't know how do you deal with your ego when it comes to proposing ideas or maybe rejection as well because yeah. Do you have ego in that case, or yeah? I think all I think all academics have some sort of ego, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's difficult sometimes to get rejections, right? I think as you become a more established professor with you know a, a larger group, I think individual rejections of papers sting a little bit less, you know. Um, And then you have more perspective to offer to the students to help them, you know, address the concerns and resubmit or whatever. Um, so I think that does get easier over time, you know, uh, as, as you, because, you know, I do invest a lot of time in every single paper, but I don't invest as much time as I did when I was a student on, on every single paper, right? And so when you're a student, it feels very personal. Um, when, you're, when you're the advisor, uh, maybe it feels a little less personal, but you still care, you know, when you get rejection. So that... It does hurt, but um, I try to I try not to take it too personally, and and I'd say that ninety five percent of the case reviewers have some truth behind what they're saying. You know, ninety five percent of the time. Of course, there's there's always going to be five percent of the time when the reviewers you just disagree and they're being hostile or whatever, and then that's this is not constructive, right? But ninety five percent of the time, the comments there's usually some truth to them, and so you you know you try to take those comments and improve your work. And, and so I think once I realized that, that my papers have always gotten better through peer review and not worse, I think, I think when, I, when I realized that, I became a lot more um, receptive to, to those comments. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think I've ever had a paper get worse because of peer review. That's a good perspective, yeah. And what could be the most important quality you have to maintain? I thought, yeah business journey, what could be the most important quality do you believe you have to maintain? I, I'd say the most important quality is that there is a, a purpose behind what I'm doing. Um, I think that, you know, I, I don't, I do control theory research, but I don't do control theory for, for just the sake of writing a theorem and writing a proof, right? Like I, I don't, I, everything that I do has, is rooted in some, in some purpose, right? Like it, improving um, mobility for people with, with partial impairments or improving mobility for people who've, who've lost a leg above the knee. Um, it's all motivated by, by some need. Um, so that, that's important. And then I think, I think any researcher, any scholar needs to also highly value um, integrity, right? I think that is super important. Um, And, and, and just keeping an open mind, I think that's also really important. So I think th those are really important qualities in my research, which I try to impart on my students and also in, in, into, the, into the papers we publish. I don't know if there's any book inspired you, uh, yeah, maybe in the field, outside. Yeah, any book you have ever written was inspiring, yeah. Yeah, actually, I've got a great story about this. Um, so... 
one of the one of the sources of inspiration for me to get into legged robots in the first place was from uh, Jesse Grizzle, who's a professor at the University of Michigan. He's one of my colleagues now, and um, I was an undergrad at Cal Berkeley, just attending a seminar on a topic that I thought was pretty cool. It sounded cool. It was a topic. Um, the seminar was about control of of dynamic running bipedal robots, and I was like, oh, I don't know anything about that. It sounds cool. And I saw Jesse Grizzle give a, give give this talk. Um, during a visit to Berkeley and it just kind of changed everything for me. I was like, wow, I really want to work on that. And so I ended up getting into legged robots um, because uh, in large part because of seeing that talk and then I've kind of um, you know, followed Jesse's work and gotten to know him over, over the past uh, decade plus years. And now, now I'm, a, I'm a colleague of his, which is really cool, right? Like that he had this big influence on me and then Many many years later, I'm I'm now you know working side by side with him. So, uh, I think that was a nice a nice um, small world uh, story for 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 what inspired me. That's inspiring. Yeah, I don't know if you have any advice. Maybe it was given to you. It was life changing? You, I don't know if you have any advice. It was given to you. Yeah, that was life changing. Um, so, hmm. I mean, so I, I do have some, I've, I've heard advice uh, from people about trying to get tenure, for example. And thankfully, I, I have gotten past that point now, so I don't have to worry too much about it now. But, um, you know, I've, I've heard from a lot of people that when you're on the tenure track, that you should do what you enjoy and, and, and not what people tell you to do. And I think that, to the most part, was true, that... Um, you know, I, I did the things that I did the service that I that I thought was that I that I enjoyed for like you know service to my community like peer review and and editorial duties and stuff like that. I, I did the service that I thought was fun, and I, and then as I was on the tenure track, I didn't do the stuff that I thought was 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 not so fun, except for the things that of course you have to do like you know when you're assigned to a committee by your department or whatever you, you have to do that. But um, but I think you know in terms of the research projects that I worked on and the type of scholarly service that I did. I, I always kind of just did what I, what I enjoyed. And I think that helped put, you know, take a lot of the stress away. So I, so I do recommend that for people who are newly on the tenure track, you know, trying to figure out what is, what are your values, you know, what, and, and what kind of, what kind of impact do you want to make on the community? Well then do the things that, that emphasize those values and will make that impact rather than thinking about like all these check boxes that you have to, you have to, you have to mark in order to get tenure because it doesn't work that way. That's really wonderful. Yeah. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say. Yeah. Any final words if you would like to say or brought to community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to just send some words of encouragement to maybe potential um, students who are thinking about getting into robotics, maybe for grad school and, they have different backgrounds. I just want to remind everyone that, especially in the type of robotics work that I do, uh, it's very, very interdisciplinary. You know, we have electrical engineers, we have mechanical engineers, um, biomedical engineers, uh, etc., that are represented in my group in terms of their, their undergraduate degrees. And, and, and no, no one person can be an expert in all of those things, right? Which, but all those things are required to make an impact in, in, in what I do. And so um, what's really important is that you master, you know, one or two of those things and you learn how to work in a team and work with people. And, and that's how you do the really, really impactful stuff. 
And so oftentimes when people ask me, well, you know, if I have this degree, can I, can I work on this, on this topic you know, later on? I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, does, does this topic require some of those skills? Well, then yes, then you're good, right? And, you know, can you work in teams with people that have other skills? Yes, well, then you're good. And so I think that that's the most important advice that I have to offer people is that um, you don't have to be an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer to do robotics research. Um, and this is also a, uh, a, a big thing that we promote at the Robotics Institute at the University of Michigan also. You know, we even have people who enroll in robotics, our, our degree program, that don't even have engineering degrees. Um, now that's rare, but it does happen. And if they're sufficiently motivated and they have you know, enough of the uh, mathematical background, then, th then they can be successful. Wonderful. So thanks so much, Robert. It was such an honor to have you and it was really interesting and enjoyable to listen to you. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for joining. Oh, sure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation again.